0: Hey family, Alyssa Childress is a wife and a mom as well as author. She's a blogger, a speaker, and a worship leader. She's always someone who's sharing quite candidly yet humbly the lessons she's learned in her spiritual journey. She was a member of the award-winning CCM recording group, Zoe Girl, which she'll talk a little bit about with us. Importantly, she's a popular speaker at Apologetics and Christian worldview conferences, including Rethink. Her newest book is Deconstructing Christianity, and I'm excited to welcome her here to talk about that and other things. Alyssa Childers.
1: Alyssa, welcome. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And I thank you for coming because your new book, Deconstructing Christianity, has a provoking title. Let's jump right into it and talk about deconstruction. It seems like a good place for us to begin our conversation. So I'd love you to tell me what is the deconstruction process that you're talking about and why have you chosen to write about it?
1: Mm. Well, deconstruction is a phenomenon that we're seeing happen It's really gained steam over the past, I would say, five or ten years. And essentially, you know, people use the word to mean lots of different things. But if your viewers may not be familiar with the phenomenon, they probably witnessed it on social media. So what it's going to look like is you might have a Christian celebrity, maybe an author or a musician. They go on Instagram, they go on Facebook and they say, you know, I, I had all these questions about my faith. No one could answer my questions. And so... I'm essentially leaving the faith. I'm leaving Christianity. And so often there'll be a hashtag that says deconstruction or ex-evangelical or something along those lines. And so um, we're seeing this phenomenon happen. I wanted to write about it, especially right now, because I started to see even well-meaning Christian church leaders almost try to take the word and baptize it and make it into something positive. Like, hey, you know, it's okay to deconstruct, just do it in a healthy way. And I, that, that was kind of bothering me, but then I thought, well, maybe we could talk about it that way, too. But there really isn't a healthy way to do that. So what we got talk about in the book is that if you need to ask hard questions or press into your doubts, that's wonderful. Do that. But let's call it something else, because the Bible tells us to test all things and hold fast to what is good. We want to be like the Bereans searching the scriptures to make sure that what we believe lines up with it but we don't need a postmodern word to describe a biblical process. And so in the book, we basically define deconstruction as a postmodern process of rethinking your faith, but not requiring scripture as a standard, because that's often in the deconstruction movement, scripture is not uh, considered authoritative or uh, the standard by which you would derive your religious beliefs. Uh, And so we kind of want to separate that out and help the church understand what's happening when all these people are leaving the faith. This is really important because I'm hearing two things and two things can be true. Two things
0: can happen at once as well. I'm hearing on the one hand that you are helping people to understand and define what deconstruction means to them if it's occurring, which I would think it may be occurring for a lot of people who are not even aware of it in the immediacy of it or at the beginning of it. On the other hand, you're also informing the church, if you will. You're giving them information, and I don't know if you're giving data, but you're giving information to churches to help guide them as they continue to lead a flock of believers. Is that true? Am I hearing you well? Yeah,
1: yeah. so our primary audience for the book is Christians who are experiencing deconstruction on the outside. So this is not the book... That you're going to give to your friend who's in deconstruction. This is not the book you're going to give to someone who's, who's going through doubt. This book is really written for their loved ones, their pastors, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their spouses, because we wanted to give the church a resource to understand this phenomenon and really ultimately to help them be able to navigate relationships they have with people who are in deconstruction and hopefully minister to them as well
0: so give us an example of destructive instances of deconstruction so that those of us who really care about our community are able to recognize up front when it's occurring
1: right so that's a great question and ultimately this is a phenomenon that's largely happening online so what will tend to happen is the person who is deconstructing basically comes to the conclusion that, Christian, like, historic Christian beliefs, the sexual ethics of the Bible, that these things are actually toxic and harmful and abusive to people. So, what will often happen is the impetus for them to disconnect from their church community and even sometimes their blood family. In fact, night after night when I speak at different places, I meet elderly couples who have grown children who are in deconstruction, and the the grown child has cut them off or said you can't see the grandkids or even sent them what's called a no-contact letter, which is something we see very often in this phenomenon. And so they're perplexed. They don't know what to do. Um, but to recognize it, typically what will happen is they'll leave their churches and leave their family uh, relationships and find community online. And what will often happen is they'll be affirmed and celebrated in leaving behind what they perceive to be these toxic beliefs and then uh, this this online community kind of becomes like their replacement church community. So, one thing to look for might be if someone starts talking about historic Christian theology in terms of, like, this is toxic theology, you're a toxic person, what you believe is harmful. And that's largely because deconstruction really flows out of postmodernism, which really is hallmarked by a rejection of the idea that absolute truth could be known, especially when it comes to religion and morality. So, in a postmodern culture, people don't think that objective truth can be known when it comes to religion. So, when the Christian comes along saying, hey, I know what the objective truth about it is, you know, we are sinners, we need a Savior, Jesus is that Savior, Um, that is perceived by the postmodern person to be kind of a harmful belief, because how could you possibly know that? So they immediately question the motives. And so that's why in the deconstruction hashtag, often you'll hear people say things like, well, the church just invented the doctrine of hell to control people with fear. Or they're just Mm -hmm. trying to prop up their power, and they're trying to keep you in the fold and control you. So when you start hearing people speak in that kind of language of toxic versus healthy, um, helpful versus harmful, um, liberating versus oppressive, those kinds of of language in reference to theology. there there might be a clue that there's some deconstruction going on Now it doesn't mean that, I mean, I, I want to be very clear. Of course, we want to get rid of toxic, harmful, oppressive beliefs, but we can't know what's actually toxic or harmful unless we first know what's true. And so I think that's really the crux of it is that deconstruction. The movement really rejects the idea that we could know absolute truth when it comes to religion and morality. And truth is
0: a big conversation for a lot of people today, whether they're referencing it from a very personal place and their ideals and ideologies, or whether they're referencing it from media or even in health and how we are progressing there. So it puts a lot of burden on the idea of, What you're leaning into in that moment, how you receive or how you perceive truth to exist to you when it comes to a spiritual or faith relationship, doesn't
1: it? Right. So truth is, it's really important because all this whole conversation, it really just rests upon what somebody thinks truth is. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like my, I catechize my kids with this definition. I'll say what is truth? And they know to say right back to me, truth is what is real. So truth is a statement that lines up with reality. But because of the influence of postmodernism, many people in our culture don't define truth that way. They they define truth as something that's relative to each person. So they might say, Well, truth is relative to your in- environment that you grew up in, your maybe your ethnicity or your gender or your the the place that you grew up or your um, particular, you know, uh, place in the world, your country or something along those lines. And that truth can be different for different people. And so, I'm sure our, our listeners and viewers have heard the phrase, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And that's really flowing out of this postmodern approach to truth, which is, which is relativism. Now, the reason relativism doesn't work is because it actually collapses on itself. So I'll try to give a, a an example that would be easy to understand. So if somebody were to say there is no truth, what you need to do is take what the statement is claiming and apply that claim to the statement itself. And so if it's true that there is no truth, well then that wouldn't be true, because that would actually be a truth. So that's a statement that mm-hmm. somebody is claiming to be true, that there is no truth. Well, if it's true, then it's not true, because there's at least one truth, which is that there is no truth. That I know that sounds a little convoluted, but that's what how relativism actually refutes itself. And so, essentially, most people don't walk around as if relativism is true, you know, is the definition of truth in every area. People go to the bank, they expect their money to be there. They might approach science or logic being in the realm of truth. But when it comes to what we should and shouldn't do morally, when it comes to what we believe about God and Christianity and the Bible, many people in our culture have put that into the relativism category. So it's really just kind of like your favorite flavor of ice cream for many people in our culture. It's like, you like vanilla, you like chocolate, It would be weird to tell somebody, no, that's wrong that you like vanilla, because that's an opinion or a preference. But our culture has taken what we believe about God and put it into the opinion category. And I think that's part of the problem, because deconstruction really flows out of that idea, which is based on kind of following what your own personal preferences are when it comes to God and when it comes to what we should and shouldn't do morally.
0: With the particular work you're doing, we could get lost in a semantic garden for people who are coming new to the ideas and the lessons you're teaching. So, Alyssa, is deconstruction, as you reference it, a new phenomenon or something that's existed in the way you talk about it for as long as faith has existed with written
1: documentation? That's a great question. So in the as far as it's being expressed right now, it's fairly new. And I think that's because it's flowing out of uh, the postmodern philosophers from the 60s, people like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. And that's when a lot of these redefinitions really gain steam in our culture. And then you have social media where people have a megaphone into the whole world. And so you have all of this stuff available online. So I think those two things, have caused it to escalate. But with that said, in the book, we trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden and really point out about when the serpent comes to Eve and said, did God really say? And he's questioning what the Word of God said. Then he's trying to mess with the interpretation of it, and he's trying to redefine words. I mean, we, we say the serpent was postmodern before we had the word postmodern, right? So, this definitely goes back to the Garden of Eden because it's all based on truth. The serpent you know, trying to deceive Eve and trick her. He's the father of lies. And so, wherever there's deception, wherever there uh, is a a change of definition of truth, because, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Mm -hmm. Christians are people of truth, right? Because Jesus claimed to be truth itself. And so, if the enemy can get us to redefine what truth is and really change it into more like an opinion, well, then he can ha- let he can give you permission to m- custom craft your own religion and make a religion in your own image. So I do think it goes. I mean, you can meaningfully trace this explosion that we're seeing to to the rise of postmodernism and social media, but it goes all the way back to the beginning.
0: I, I, I was thinking that when I was uh, thinking about the uh, content of your not just this book but other uh, books and. Uh, that you've written and how you're communicating this forward right now, that it isn't really a new circumstance, but you're giving a new treatment to it for the relevancy of where we are today, the truth of where we are today and the tools we have to engage that. Um, Let me ask you this. When we talk as Christians And about Jesus being the truth, the light and the truth. How do you communicate to people who are non-Christians about where they are or how they come to a truth for themselves? All Mm -hmm. in line with deconstruction. I understand the book is for a particular set of people. Now I'm expanding that beyond and and aggregating all of your teachings into how do we communicate with people who are Mm non-Christians. Is my
1: question clear for you? I think so. Are you asking like um, about basic evangelism or more how you would talk to somebody who's in deconstruction? Someone
0: who, can deconstruction occur for people who are not Christians? Can it occur for a Buddhist? Can it occur? Mm a Muslim, can it occur for
1: people of different faith bases? Yeah, I certainly think, yeah. That's an interesting question. I certainly think it could, if the person was assessing their beliefs, their religious beliefs, but based on sort of this self-led process of rejecting uh, absolute truth. So for example, take your example of a Buddhist. If if somebody was raised a Buddhist and they said well i don't think that's true i think i, I think i need to find what works for me so i'm going to deconstruct the buddhism but the interesting thing about that though is that in deconstruction and and we have over 200 footnotes of quotes from deconstructionists and all this in the book they actually don't care where you land and they they'd be fine with buddhism they would be fine with secular humanism they would be fine with you landing in Islam, or New Age, or progressive Christianity, as long as you leave what they consider to be the toxic beliefs of what—now, they're going to use the word evangelical, but often what they mean are the core beliefs of just the gospel. So, any kind of uh, objective statement like, hell exists, or that Jesus is the judge, or that you're a sinner— these are seen as toxic, so you know Buddhism is going to be a fine place to land for a lot of people because they can just—it's very pragmatic. They can just follow the Buddhist Eightfold Path and 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 kind of custom craft it however they want. Um, but I certainly think that our definition could apply to people of other worldviews. But for example, let's say somebody was raised in a very legalistic sect of Christianity that had a lot of unbiblical teachings. Okay, and let's say they grow up and they go, you know, I'm going to question these teachings I was taught. And they get out their Bible and they compare what they were taught with what the Bible actually says. And they, they are going on a deep uh, soul-searching journey to try to get rid of unbiblical teachings, op- oppressive teachings even, um, teachings that, that were very legalistic. And they separate that, but they remain a Christian who believes in the Bible, who believes in Jesus, and they correct those views, we would actually not call that deconstruction. And that's Mm. because they're basing their journey on truth. They want to find out what's absolutely true about God, and they want to reject the unbiblical teachings that they grew up with. We would only call that deconstruction if the person's way that they were doing it was self-led, Like, I'm just gonna live my truth. I'm gonna reject the ones I don't like and kind of custom craft something that I do like. But if if they have an external external authority for truth that they're pursuing, we would not call that deconstruction. We would only call it deconstruction if it was more of a, um, I wanna live my truth and I'm gonna just find what works for me and with disregard for what's actually true outside of themselves.
0: So you, you you just keep creating new questions for me as you <laughs> continue to talk. A friend had shared with me, a professional friend, had shared with me several years ago that um, Christians teach at a young age, and I'm putting Christians in quote, not to say all Christians. Christians teach at a young age not to question God. And Jewish people teach please question your faith and you know the idea is that the more you question the more you learn and the firmer you become in 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 a strength about your uh faith what's your impression of that analogy
1: yeah i think um it i would not advocate telling people not to question god i would say question question all of it In fact, the Bible even has the example of the Bereans, where they were questioning what Paul said, and they were searching the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. So I think we have biblical precedent for questioning. In fact, we have a whole chapter in the book on questions. And I think that it's important— I want you to get to that and lean into that a little bit. I
0: think it's a fascinating chapter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's important to—even to communicate to kids who are growing up in the church that— Yes, we want you to question. We want you to we want you to know why you believe the Bible is God's word. We want you to know why you believe Jesus is the savior, or why we believe that he was raised from the dead. But as we point out in that chapter section, the problem sometimes is that people grow up in environments where they're told that they're told you can't question God. You can't question this. You just have to believe. And so they keep pushing their questions and doubts down and then it just all comes tumbling out and i don't think that's healthy i think we should we should provide spaces where people can ask questions but not all questions are honest questions and i think that's something that needs to be acknowledged because an honest question is when you you know maybe you're reading something in the old testament you find it a little troubling and you're like okay i got to get to the bottom of what's really going on here and you're looking for truth that's an honest question but sometimes people ask questions because they're just seeking justification for the unbelief that's already there. So a perfect example of this is I had a friend in my life who had a doubt about the, the way that the manuscript tradition was, you know, the manuscripts were copied for the New Testament. And I sent her a lot of resources. I sent her a couple of books she could read on it, um, even a couple of podcasts, lots of different resources, did my best to answer her question as far as the knowledge that I had. And she just kept rephrasing the question and asking it again and again and again. And she didn't read the books. And and, I'm, and I remember finally at one point going, I don't think she likes the answer. I don't think she wants the answer. And so I, what I realized with her is that she wanted to believe that the Bible was this tool of oppression, that it was written to oppress people. And she was looking for any information that would j- justify that belief. She didn't actually want the truth the truthful answer about how it all came to be. and so i think that it's important to acknowledge to acknowledge that not all questions are honest. and another thing is that not all questions are accepted, the answers to the questions. so somebody might have a question about faith and they're given the answer and they don't like it so it's just unacceptable to them. and so they they keep looking for for more ways to to talk about it. So I think it's good to ask questions, but the problem with the deconstruction movement, in fact, I was just in an interview yesterday where the host played a clip from a deconstructionist talking about questions, and the deconstructionist said, don't don't look for answers, just look for the next question. And then he said, questions are the answer. Just keep questioning, never stop questioning, never, and he actually said this, never land on an answer, because if you land on an answer, you're just gonna have to deconstruct that. And so that's the mentality in the deconstruction movement is to just keep finding the next question, don't land on an answer because then you'll just have to deconstruct that. And so I think that's where we have to ask ourselves, are these questions honest? Because if I have a doubt, if I'm doubting something about what I believe, my goal is to resolve that doubt. I want to engage with it. I want to find information. I want to search. Sometimes it takes years. But ultimately, my goal is to resolve the doubt if I can. But in deconstruction, in that movement, it's really about just living in this kind of space where you just always question and always doubt, and it creates a culture of confusion, I think, and and just a culture of doubt, which I don't think is healthy.
0: I, I, I like that you say a culture of doubt versus a culture of questioning. I, I really like the direction you're taking there. In your bio, you're referenced as a former CCM recording artist turned apologist. Alyssa, explain what you're apologizing about and how it takes the um, form of an apologist for you. What, what led you to this current path?
1: Right well, the word uh, apologist comes it's it's flowing out of the word apologetics. and mm-hmm. so it's actually a biblical term. a lot of people don't realize this. so in uh, in the scriptures and I it's either I always mix it up if it's first Peter or second Peter three fifteen, but it says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you and that word that's translated wait into... a minute,
0: wait a minute, wait
1: a minute, just repeat that Alyssa. always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. And then Peter goes on to say, but do it with gentleness and respect. And so, um, that word reason that's translated into English comes from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our word apologetic. So, really, we're not actually apologizing for anything. We're giving reasons why Christianity is true, why we have this great hope, in the Gospel of Jesus, and so my journey from musician and singer into apologist was a—it uh, was actually a very difficult journey for me. It wasn't something I ever saw myself doing. It wasn't a plan I made for myself, but back when I was in music, um, we we would sing for our. I was in a group called Zoe Girls, so we were a girl pop group aimed at young teenage girls. And I loved having that experience. I was a lifelong Christian. I loved Jesus my whole life, and um, it wasn't until I we, Zoe Girl came off the road. We weren't making music anymore. We were all married at this point and starting to have kids, and my husband and I started attending a church right in the heart of the Bible Belt here in Middle Tennessee where we live, and we loved it. We just loved the pastor. We loved the people, and about eight months into my uh, time attending there, the pastor pulled me aside and he said, I want to invite you to be a part of a smaller study and discussion group. And this sounded really exciting to me because I had never really investigated those intellectual questions about my faith. I was kind of just a flaky artist my whole life who loved Jesus, though. Um, But I was really excited. Well, in the context of this small class, the pastor told us that he was actually an agnostic, meaning that he didn't know what he believed about um, questions of faith and Christianity. Well, of course, that, that was very shocking to me because he's my pastor, but um, I just vowed to keep an open mind. But over the course of the time I was in this class, he took all the beliefs that I had cherished my whole life. He picked them apart. He explained them away and ultimately um, caused me to go into a time of deep questioning and deep doubt to the point where I really at certain times wasn't even sure if God existed at all. And so, I cried out to God one night and I said, God, if you're real, if everything that I've ever believed about you is true, I need information. And so, I'm so thankful to the Lord and his faithfulness to lead me to study things like apologetics and church history and systematic theology and philosophy and uh, just about anything I could get my hands on so that I could look for reasons and evidence for why I believe what I do and and what is true about what I believe. And so, I'm really thrilled to have found other apologists who were giving these reasons. And so that's what I do today is I help other people, you know, know the reasons for why we believe these things are true.
0: When you talk about reasons and you go back to the uh, context or the meaning of the word, it reminds me of when we were raising our children, um, We we would, as an example, If homework wasn't prepared well or timely, we'd ask what that reason was. And if they would tell us because my rehearsal ran late, we'd always come back to them and ask them, please define whether that's a reason or an excuse and Mm. teach early on to dig in because you're late in a rehearsal. Isn't a reason your homework isn't prepared, perhaps not planning well is a Mm. reason. You know, or not wanting to do it is a reason, and so you're you're going back to some very core things that have been a part of, uh, of how we apply thought around reason. As we start to look at it in terms of deconstruction, how do you think deconstruction
1: negatively may impact a community? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, it it's it's it has a great impact on community because typically when someone the only people who deconstruct as far as how we're talking about it with faith deconstruction uh-huh. they're coming out of churches, right? These are these are people who probably grew up in church and so it has a massive impact on the community because what tends to happen is the person who's deconstructing Truly believes that the Christians in their life are toxic people. Their beliefs are harmful to people, and so the, it's seen as virtuous to really disconnect from those church communities. So it can have devastating effects on a church community. It can have devastating effects even on the person deconstructing because they're lose. You know, they are walking away from their uh, support system and community. But then they find community online in these social media spaces under the deconstruction hashtag and the ex-evangelical hashtag. And so, it it actually has had devastating effects in families. Um, night after night, like I, I mentioned earlier, I, I meet parents who have come up to me with tears in their eyes saying, my adult child has deconstructed, they won't let us see our grandkids, they're telling us we're toxic people. Um, in some cases, they'll even receive a letter from their loved one who says, I don't want any more contact with you. Don't contact me. Don't text me. Don't call me. And so it it really tears communities apart and it, it is, can have a devastating effect on the community.
0: You know, you've talked a, a, a little bit in brevity just now about a period of doubt about your faith. Uh, maybe you were in your mid thirties. I don't know. That, mm-hmm. That's not as critical as what I'm asking you in terms of walking me through your own spiritual journey.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I was a deeply devoted Christian as a very young child. I read almost the whole Bible by the time I was 12 years old, just on my own. I I loved the Word of God. I knew deep in my bones that the Bible was God's Word. I knew that I could trust it. I knew that I loved Jesus. That I believed that He died on the cross for my sins. I had, you know, repented and turned to Him in faith, and really walked closely with Him for most of my life. Even going into high school, I was—I um, went to a Christian high school where I was the the school chaplain. I led uh, the worship team, and we did Bible studies, and I, I was just really committed to Jesus. I—I I was all in, and I, I say that because I wasn't just. Sort of a part of the church community and just kind of liked it, and it was like, whatever, that's fine. I mean, I I really loved Jesus. I had an active prayer life, an active Bible study life. And so, um, but I never questioned what I believed as, as a young person. And it's interesting that I didn't because we did a lot of um, homeless ministry, and that was with my mom, and then with my dad, we did a lot of what he called street evangelism. So we would go out to Hollywood Boulevard, or we would... I grew up in Los Angeles, so we'd go there, or somewhere like Skid Row. We'd set up a like a stage, and people would sing, and then those of us who weren't on the stage would go out and witness to people. We would share the gospel and hand out gospel tracts. And so, even at like 13, 14 years old, I met a lot of people from other worldviews who thought that what I believed was not true. Um, but I nothing they ever said rattled me. And I think that's because I could walk away from what they were saying. I could, I could just dismiss it and then move on to the next person. And really, anytime anybody said anything against the Bible, I would just be like, well, they just don't get it. You know, one day the Holy Spirit will reveal this to them and they'll understand it. And so... My faith was never rattled, even meeting agnostics and atheists and uh, even, you know, Wiccans and Satanists. I met lots of people growing up of other worldviews. And so it really wasn't until I, I was in this class that all of that really, I don't know, took root. And I think part of the reason as I analyze it and I think back about it, I think part of the reason it was had such a profound effect on me is because it was from my pastor that I trusted. I had really come to respect him, and I thought we were on the same page. So, it was very confusing. It was an incredibly disorienting and confusing time, because unlike the person when I was witnessing, I couldn't just walk away. This was now information that I knew that I couldn't unknow. And so, it forced me to really dig deeper. But I do think there was maybe an element in my spiritual journey that led to that a little bit. And that's when I was touring, you know, we were touring all over the country when I was in Zoe Girl. We were um, traveling a lot, so I was tired. I was struggling with some depression. I had become a little bit apathetic. I wasn't reading my Bible every day like I had before. I was not attending a local church regularly because we were gone most sundays and i just did not like it's the question you ask your kids is that a reason or an excuse this is an excuse is that i was i was just tired and i i didn't feel like going to church when it was when it was uh when we were home on a sunday so i lost touch with the local church and i think a lot of those reasons put together i still loved jesus but all those reasons together are probably what made me vulnerable to um being open-minded enough to to listen to what the pastor had to say. And um, of course, I mean, I, I guess I, that's not the best way to word it. I think vulnerable in the sense that I was more easily confused, I think, than if I had really been in the Word every day, connected to a local church. I'm not sure it would have rattled me quite as much, but it really did. And it, it propelled me into a faith crisis that felt like I had been thrown into just a stormy ocean of doubt with these huge waves just crashing over my head. And I I was just dog paddling, trying to keep my head above water. And so I am so thankful to the Lord for leading me to resources and apologists and theologians and scholars and all sorts of different people that had been pondering these questions a lot longer than I had and um, had written lots of books on these things. And so it was very... Uh, encouraging to know that that, all of that information was out there.
0: You know, you talk about vulnerability. And these days, people are receiving so much data, so much noise, oftentimes all at the same time, while attempting to define or redefine where they are in their lives. There are different ways to achieve a goal of finding that. And while this isn't necessarily about deconstruction, certainly your journey has taught you something about how to find that place that you can just clean out and be ready to move forward. Talk about that for somebody who may be listening right now. And it's just looking for that. They're not even at the point of deconstruction. They're just looking to how do I clean out this noise that I've got? How do mm. I find my place? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, you you are not exaggerating. We live amongst a lot of noise. And I think that, you know, social media can be such a great tool to share the gospel, to get truth out into the world, but it also can have a lot of really negative effects, too, and I think, I mean, my advice for anybody would be, it's really okay to get off social media for a little while. It's it's really okay. You're not going to miss out on, on anything. And so, um, I think sometimes we need that. We need just times of silence. We need to block out all that other stuff. I, I think, for me, in a practical sense, just on an everyday thing, I've thought a lot more in recent years about discipline, and about disciplining myself to take time that's blocked for certain things. so
0: were you into my home when we were raising our children another thing we if you ask my kids, you know a reason isn't, they'll say an excuse. If you ask them discipline is, they'll say not a dirty word because. That's it's good, yeah. It's not a dirty word, uh, but it is for a lot of people. It feels like a restriction or a denial or, or 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 a harder thing than it worth, you know, the juices
1: are worth the squeeze kind of thing. Please continue your thought yeah. on that. That's, That's good. I- That's good, good. Um, yeah, so I think that um, so many of us, you know, for example, this is something I've really tried to do and I don't do it perfectly, but I am working on it. One thing I've tried to do for myself is like, I don't I don't use this until I'm done with my Bible study for the morning. You know, because our tendency is to roll out of bed, pull this out, start scrolling, and then you get in rabbit trails and you get distracted, waste a bunch of time. So I've tried to really just put that down, get my coffee, do my Bible study, get some of my prayer time in before I even think about opening any kind of a social media. Of course, I'm not a huge fan of social media. I have a a team of people that run my pages for me which I am so thankful for that because I just don't think I have the bandwidth for, for being on social media all the time. Um, but yeah, I think that it's it's important for us to regulate ourselves with these things. And and I think the other thing that, I don't know if this is directly related to your question, but I thought of it as you were talking. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important for us to know where what our anchor is, like where we plant our feet. And so for me, no matter what newfangled, idea comes along, no matter what, you know, fancy book on prayer comes out or whatever it is that everybody's into, I know that my anchor where I plant my feet is on God's word. And so I can take whatever that is, if I want to, or I can, I don't have to have it because I have the word of God. But if I want it, is that going to be part of the formula for the path to reconstruction? I would, I mean, I would hope so. I would certainly hope that if anybody Has deconstructed, then, and then they may, maybe they do now, then at that point, want to pursue truth. I think if they, if they pursue truth, it will lead them to trusting the Bible as God's word. And yes, I would say construct your beliefs based on God's word. And then, and then no matter what's going on around you, you know, you have that solid place to plant your feet. And Whatever newfangled thing everybody's into, you you can engage with it if you want to, but you have a standard to compare it to, to say, okay, I'm going to judge whether or not I agree with this based on if it agrees with the Word of God. And that has brought so much stability into my life because it also takes us out of the realm of depending so much on our feelings. Because I think so often Christians are so dependent on, oh, did I feel this or did I have this experience? But if we have the Word of God, we plant our feet on that, then we know it's true whether we feel it or not. And that's actually a place of great freedom. It has been for me at least.
0: So, I asked you earlier something around the idea of Christianity in the face of other faiths, especially in this world torn on the issue of religion and denominations. What's the big message or aspect of Christian faith that you're conveying to people that you hope they are receiving from you, Alyssa?
1: Mm. I just would hope that people would know that I think the Christian worldview is the best explanation for reality. If you think about all of the deep questions people ask, everybody asks these questions at one point or another. What is the meaning of life? What are humans? What's wrong with us? I think if every honest person takes a cursory look at world history, you can see that there is something wrong with humans. I mean, I'll look at all the wars, the slavery, the oppression. look at all the things that we have done to one another throughout world history. There's something broken about us. so how did, what is that? And how does that get fixed? Where are we going? Where do we go when we die? What fixes the problems? What's the cure to all of that? And so, I guess my hope would be to invite, even you know, if if people are non-Christians, unbelievers, to invite them, to consider those questions, and I don't think any of the other worldview gives better and more satisfying answers than Christianity does, and my hope would be that ultimately somebody would realize that what's broken about all of us—and none of us get to pass because we all have that—is is sin. Sin is—there's um, an Old Testament scholar that describes sin as an acid that mars and destroys everything it touches. And, and humans have a sin problem, but we can actually turn from that and turn to Christ who took our sins upon himself on the cross, paid the price we should have paid, so that we can just trust in him with faith. And then the righteousness that he accomplished, that perfectly sinless life that he lived on earth, that gets put on us so that when God looks at us, he sees not our sin and ugliness, but it's like a garment that covers us the righteousness of Jesus. And then we have an advocate before the Father. I love the way that I think it's First John talks about that, that we have an advocate, and that's Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that. And then, of course, knowing that ultimately, on the other side of life, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. And we have that to look forward to. So Christians have an eternal perspective of what comes next. Beyond just what happens in this life, and I think that's why Christians, when they're truly informed biblically and they truly have a biblical and Christian worldview, they suffer well, because we know that when we suffer, we learn, and we we learn in patience, we learn and we grow in compassion for others who go through the similar things. We tend to want to reach out to other people who are going through similar sufferings, but ultimately, we know that there is coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. So it's worth whatever we have to go through on this earth. And so I just think the big worldview questions, Christianity has better and more satisfying answers than any other worldview. So let me ask you this, because you said better and more satisfying. You
0: didn't say absolute and only. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, You talk about suffering. You talk about being broken. Do we have to be broken? And do we have to suffer? We can all... Analyze the benefits of those who are healed or strengthened through the brokenness, or but but do we have to go through that? Mm. Is it essential
1: as being a part of a human experience? Uh, well, I mean, I th- obviously there's a spectrum, not everybody suffers as much as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Some people mm-hmm. have, I, I just on my podcast, I interviewed a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata who mm-hmm. has been a quadriplegic since she was 17, and she's in her 70s now. And she has su- and she suffers with chronic pain. So obviously she has suffered exponentially more than I have. And there's some there are people out there that have suffered more than she has. Um, so I do think it's a part of the human experience, though, suffering. We all we all suffer at one point or another. I've never met anybody that has just coasted through life, everything's great. I do think, though, in the affluent West, it's easier for us to feel more self-sufficient because we have so many conveniences. You know, we have washing machines and we have um, Amazon will deliver our groceries. We have so many, um, you know, sort of these affluent things that can potentially inhibit us from experiencing some of the things that might draw us closer to God or make us realize more about ourselves and and others. Um, so I think that's something we have to kind of fight in the West a little bit is this sort of convenience and affluence that leads us to um, self-sufficiency. Because if you, you look I, through
0: it, go ahead. Look, you know, I could talk with you forever and I know you've got a timeline to this. Please complete your thought and then we're gonna talk about Zoe Girl.
1: Okay. Well, that was basically it. Just, you know, it's, I, I think that's an interesting question about suffering. A friend of mine, I wrote about this in my second book, a friend of mine um, is from um, Congo. And she was a refugee for 18 months in Congo. And I've read her book where it's just the the deep suffering she went through. And honestly, she's one of the kindest, most patient, uh, most tenderhearted people I know today. And I know that a lot of that is a direct result of the suffering she endured. So sometimes I'm kind of afraid to pray those prayers (laughs) like, Lord, bring across my path whatever I need to to make me more more patient. Because I know that that's probably going to involve hardship. Um, but ultimately as a Christian, we trust him with our hardships. And we know that there's a scripture that says he turns all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I've seen that ring true in my life time and time again.
0: So we know from the Bible that Jesus taught us how to pray to God, our father who art in heaven. Um, we also, as Christians, enjoy a luxury of praying from anywhere to any circumstance before Mm. our father. Are there guidelines or or coachable pieces of of prayer preparedness that you can give someone Mm. who maybe they're rethinking prayer or how do I pray toward a better
1: place or from a better place mm. well I, I i you you said it perfectly jesus if there's anything like there are some things in scripture that are harder to understand than others but one of those is not prayer prayer is is actually this is the one time jesus said Pray like this. And I love that he gave us an example and said, you know, when you pray, pray like this. And then he went into the Lord's Prayer that we've all probably memorized. And so there's a pattern there in the Lord's Prayer. And that would be my advice is to always try to kind of follow that pattern. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed by that be thy name. Start with praise. Start with adoration, declaring who God is. Um... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Before you you proceed, we had conversation about the Lord's Prayer a lot growing up as children. And when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, it does establish a platform of praise that we're speaking from. We were taught also that it establishes a place of trust. Mm. And a place of confidence when we are when we are saying, "Hallowed be Thy name," the the you know the holiest and the highest praise we can give to God. It then inherently and or by default speaks to the strength and the power that That's we great. can have faith and trust in, and so you know it's interesting when you talk about it from that perspective for me cuz it's taking me right back to my childhood and the things yeah. that I learned early on
1: yeah it's so great to have that pattern isn't it because we know we, you start with praise and adoration then you're praying for God's will to be done and that's an important prayer too because it, I think- it
0: wasn't about God needing that praise god we were taught god loved that praise because it established your trust in it mm. not that well- it was flattery to God.
1: Right. It's not It's not like God is a big narcissist in the sky that just needs his ego to be, you know, fluffed <laughs> by us saying these things. It's actually, you know, it, it's the reason we exist is to worship him, to be in relationship with him and to praise him, to reflect his glory. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that it sets it up that way. And then, you know, moving through the prayer, there's repentance, there's um, forgiving others, there's asking for his will to be done, which is important because sometimes we like to tell God what to do and it's okay to ask for things, but we ultimately want to ask for his will to be done. And on earth, uh, that in heaven. yeah, it, that's right. And then, you know, f- asking for daily needs, these all follow the pattern of the Lord's prayer. So I think that would be my bit. My main advice is. And there's always a new prayer book that comes out that teaches you to do this kind of wacky thing. You don't have to do that stuff. Just do what Jesus told you to do, pray like this. And that, that would be my advice on prayer.
0: And I think also uh, the circumstance of prayer can dictate how you ready for prayer sometimes. I don't think it always has to be in a quiet place Humbled yourself before God. I think sometimes it can be in the midst of a stadium or in the oh, yeah. midst of a street. You know, I I I think that God hears it from everywhere and every circumstance.
1: Every oh, absolutely, preach it, sister. I mean, all day long. We mm-hmm. should be in prayer all day long, and that's the thing where it's you know it's good to have a time that you're just kind of focused on it. you your that's your prayer time. But don't let that make you know. I'm just speaking to the viewers here. Like, don't let that make you stop praying throughout the day. Pray all throughout the day. He's with you. Just talk to him. You know. And and
0: and and and, Mom used to teach us, prayer is a two way line. It's about as much listening as it is. You know, you can have different forms of prayer, right? Prayers of petition, prayers of intercession. But you know, it's a two way line. We have to. Be complete in prayer. Don't just ask God and then hang up. You know, <laughs> kind of like sending an email and waiting to see what's going right, to happen. But right. you, 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 Back in the days when we sent emails, um, you don't have to do that. I, I, I could talk with you forever on just this, and and you know. Gosh, but we do have a timeline that I want to respect for you. Let's talk a little bit about Zoe Girl and some of your favorite memories of that time, and importantly, any insights you gained during that time that mm. di- dynamically or directly uh, contributed to your spiritual journey.
1: Mm. Well, it was a it was a wild ride. It was about seven or eight years of nearly constant touring or recording. Um, you know, I was twenty five. I moved to Nashville to be a part of Zoe Girl and it was a whirlwind experience. I got to play Madison Square Garden with Carmen. Remember Carmen, the, yep. the artist? We got to yep. play Madison Square Garden. I got to play the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Got to play in a lot of amazing venues. Um, in fact, our first tour was a teeny tiny little tour and then our second tour was the Carmen tour and that was an arena tour so almost right off the bat i was touring in these giant arenas and performing in front of multiple uh, thousands of people 20 30,000 people depending on where we were and it was just it was it was surreal it was a surreal experience and i did learn a lot about um the importance of remaining consistent with your prayer and devotional life because I didn't do what... I did not do that well, and I do think that is what set me up to be vulnerable to um, this just crushing doubt that I would end up in a little bit later, but it was a really sweet time. There were things I struggled with. I didn't do well with touring life. I... um, Like I mentioned, I was struggling with some depression and... um, I just didn't do well. My husband did it for like 40 years. He was a drummer and then a road manager. He toured for 40 years and he did great. I just did not do as great as he did. <laughs> so, um, I learned a lot. I learned that about myself. Um, much lo- I loved to be home. Although, I do some traveling now and as a more mature woman, heading toward my 50s now, um, I really enjoy it and I and I'm and that's actually I took the lessons from maybe the mistakes I made in so a girl and I, I fix those now. So, I when I'm traveling, I get my exercise, I do my Bible study, my prayer time, and sometimes, you know, if I'm tired and it's been a long run, I'll put on a Bible teaching. Just I'll go out and walk and put a Bible teaching in and kind of get spoon-fed a little bit, and you know what? That's great. If, if that's what you need to do, do it, you know? If, you, if you're exhausted and you can't just sit down with your concordance, you know, put put on some good Bible teaching and and just let your soul be edified by the word of God, and that's what I try to do. So, it was a sweet time. It was, um, like I said, a whirlwind. We do photo shoots and video shoots, and all those things that, you know, come along with it. Um, it, was a, it was a really fun experience.
0: Yeah, yeah what's all, what's fun isn't always filling though, and I get that's it. right.
1: That's I get right. It. I-
0: Glad you mentioned concordance because so many people are reaching for the Bible and not the guide that helps them, especially if you're not as mature or as um, as detailed in how you're how you're taught. To read the Bible. You know, mental health is a busy area of conversation these days, and many people thankfully are getting professional help where it's needed, but many sadly are not. The question of faith and spirituality are big as well, Alyssa. For anybody who may be going through a period of doubt about um, how to do their own deconstruction and rebuilding or simply coming anew to spirituality, What advice or encouragement do you offer after all of the information you've just Mm. shared
1: well my advice would be that if you're a new christian you don't need to deconstruct what you want to do is make sure that what you believe lines up with what's true make sure it lines up with scripture and in the book we talk about using a different word for that and that would be reformation reform Mm. your faith every day and uh do it according to truth do it according to scripture so if you have beliefs that you need to kind of pick apart and get rid of because they're unbiblical or untrue, do that. And let's call that reformation. And um, that would be my advice uh, to you. And for and, and I would add this as well. If you have loved ones who are in deconstruction, um, that's going to be a difficult relationship to navigate. And so we have a whole chapter in the book called advice. And that's where we, we present different uh, dynamics of relationships, like what it might look like if you have a spouse who's in deconstruction, or if you have an adult child who's in deconstruction, or a sister, or a brother, or college friend. And we kind of talk through some different scenarios, and ultimately, we encourage you to live the beauty of the gospel out in front of your friend and loved one who's deconstructing. Let them see the peace of Jesus in your life, and never underestimate the power of prayer. You can, even if they've cut you off, you can always pray. And you can pray for them. You are never left powerless because of that. And that's, I'm so glad we spent so much time talking about prayer because you can you can always pray for your loved one.
0: Mom used to, t- uh, my, 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 um, Mother in law, mom used to say, Your children who more attention paid to what you do than what you say. Mm-hmm. I love that you're teaching people to live out loud the examples and the lessons they would teach and and using prayer as a constancy to that. Wow, well, I've enjoyed talking with you. Can we go four for four? I know we're running close yes. to Okay, so I'm going to ask you four questions to which you'll give me four answers. There are no wrong answers. <laughs> And the first one is you get to host a dinner, Alyssa, for any four people you wish from any time in history through present. Don't make them up. Uh,
1: (laughs) Who's at your table and why? I have thought about this a lot. (laughs) So I think that the four that would be at my table would be, and I can have Jesus as one of them, right? Yes,
0: yes. Because okay. I was gonna ask you earlier if you believe the Bible is a history or a book
1: of ideals. Oh yeah. Well, there's the the Bible is a collection of books. There's history. Some books are historical in, in their nature, and then other books are more ideals, like the epistles, the letters of Paul. These are like teaching you how to how to live as a Christian and all that. So it's a collection of books, different genres. But um, yes, I believe the figures that it talks about are historical, that they, they really existed. So um, I would have Jesus at the table, St. Augustine, Bob Dylan, and the Apostle Paul.
0: Those would be my four. Now, why? Why? I mean, Paul was multilingual. I don't know about the others who are coming to dinner.
1: Why? (laughs) Okay, so um, because I think Bob Dylan is a fascinating person, and I would be very interested to hear how he would address Paul and Jesus. But I also know that Augustine is one of my favorite people in church history. I loved his book, Confessions. And Bob Dylan also loved Augustine and wrote a song about him. Mm-hmm. So I just think that would be an interesting an interesting mix to see where the conversation would go and um, what they would agree on, what you know, Bob Dylan would agree with Augustine on and what the two of them would agree or disagree on and then how they would respond to <laughs> the
0: Apostle Paul and Jesus. Mm, that that that's fantastic. Uh, and having them at dinner today would be just so incredible to talk about their perspectives, but more importantly, their remedies for today as mm, well. That's true. Yes. Um, so, music. What four artists or pieces of music are you listening to, and why?
1: So this is a tough one because I. I don't listen to a ton of music myself. So um I the music I listen to is usually when my kids are in the car and they want to <laughs> play me, they want to play me some music. So we've been with my kids, we've been listening to an artist named Alec Benjamin. I think he's a great little songwriter. He's got some some good music. Let's see, what else have we been listening to? Um we we've been listening to some genres of, and I didn't even know this was a thing until like this year, of music that's Sur- surrounding the themes of different video games. Mm-hmm. So we we listen to some of that.
0: Because I was just when you say you weren't listening to music, I was like, what are you listening to? Because everything has a component of music to it. And yeah, yeah. you're a show girl.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. And um, I'm trying to think what else. Well, and once in a while I put on um, some Bob Dylan. I just I was a huge Bob Dylan fan, I loved that. Mm-hmm. And um gosh. Just, you know, it's a lot of different things my kids are playing. So it's all all sorts of different stuff. Cool, cool. Yeah. What about books? What
0: four books do you recommend to our uh, family and
1: why? So outside of the Bible, of course, I would recommend everybody read the Bible. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the book I would recommend every Christian read other than the Bible would be Confessions by St. Augustine. So this is written Mm -hmm. in about um, the fifth century. And he was a brother in Christ who wrote this beautiful book about confession of sin. And he talked about how deep he poured through his heart to confess his sins to the Lord. And he's just an interesting character. I like him anyway. Um, A wonderful book that I think everybody should read this year is called The War on Toxic Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. It's a phenomenal book that takes you through the history of kind of why men are the way they are, and women are the way they are, and why there's so much kind of confusion in those areas. So, <clears throat> that would be the third one. And the, the fourth one, I'll just... I'll just... Let's see here. What, what do I want to... Which one? I, I had it in my mind, and now I lost it. Um, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Jeff Myers called Truth Changes Everything. And mm-hmm. that's another uh, one that, that I read this year that I would recommend everybody read. And why would you recommend that one?
0: Because truth changes everything?
1: Because truth changes everything, but also he traces, um, really demonstrates throughout world history the the benefit of the Christian worldview, what the Christian worldview brought to different phases of history and how it really has been a light in the world.
0: Well, we're going to go four for four. What four pieces of advice do you give our family listening now? And if that advice was shared to you by someone else, please
1: give homage to the person or the author. Yes, absolutely. So the first one would be, um, this comes from, uh, I believe, Alexander Stolznytsch, and I'm not going to say that right, but it's live not by lies. I think we're living in a culture that wants us to affirm things that aren't true and Just live not by lies. Nobody should make you have to say something that you don't think is true just to fit in. So live not by lies. Um, The other one would be plant your feet on God's word because it doesn't change. And that should bring us a lot of relief because our culture is so radically changing. And if we plant our feet on the eternal truths of God's word, it's a stable day and tomorrow and forever. That's right. So it's a stable (laughs) place to stand. So live not by lies, um, stand on the word of God. If you've never called on the name of the Lord to save you, call on the name of the Lord. We know from the sermon in Acts that Peter said, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, So call on the name of the Lord. And finally, I would say, it's okay to live a life where you don't put yourself first. Because I think our culture is always saying, put yourself first, you need to be the hero of your own story. It's actually going to be better if you put God first, if you put your family before you. And that doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself, obviously, but put other people's needs before your own. The scripture says that he who refreshes others will himself also be refreshed. So when we serve others, when we put others first, it actually puts gas in our own tanks too.
0: Wow, have you fueled me up. And I am so grateful for you coming on, joining our family. Alyssa, is there anything I didn't ask you or anything you want to share that you believe is important to this moment?
1: Well, I will say that um, the book comes out on the 30th of January. So if anybody wants to pre-order, you can order it anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Christian book. And then if you go take your receipt number, go over to the deconstructionofchristianity.com. You can fill out a form and you'll get some bonuses for pre-ordering. So you'll get an email with that advice chapter I mentioned for free and early. And you'll also get 60 days free access to the audiobook. So definitely, if you want to pre-order, you'll get some bonuses. Go to the deconstructionofchristianity.com and fill out that form there.
0: Oh, wow. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. You know, when uh, our children were little, before they learned the Lord's Prayer, they would hear the Lord's Prayer from us. We taught them the supreme intelligence is my strength. All of my weaknesses are forgiven. I forgive everyone as I forgive myself. Only good is welcome into my life. You have certainly brought an answer to that prayer. You And we've learned a lot from you. I look forward to seeing you as you continue your journey. Welcome back anytime. We could have a whole conversation on prayer. And from my heart to your home, thank you. Thank you.